All right, everybody, welcome to Inside the Hexagon. It is our first maiden voyage, our first episode, uh, and we are really, really excited to have you here. Uh, this is something that we've been working on for a little while, and again, just so excited about what we're going to bring uh, to you. Hopefully that you enjoy this as an MMA fan, uh, maybe even as a, a, a combo MMA pro wrestling fan. Uh, but yeah, again, we are just really, really excited uh, to have you here. Uh, we've got some, we've got some really great episodes that have already been recorded, some really good interviews that have already been done, and we'll talk more about those um, as we as we go along. But uh, before we we jump into uh, Shamrock versus Gracie, I want to give some background on on myself and my co-host uh, Josh Molina, and I'll let him say hello in just a second. But uh, we decided that you know this was Strike Force was just such a, a an impactful and such an influential uh, MMA promotion. And I don't feel that uh, it gets the respect that it deserves. Uh, it, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. There are so many great fighters, uh, some that have retired within the last few years, but many that are still competing and still winning championships that either got their start in Strike Force or really made their name in Strike Force. And so, uh, you know, we'll, like I said, myself and my co-host Josh Molina will give our, our background in just a second. But we just felt like this was a story that needed to be told and and kind of gone back through and so that's the point of this podcast series and we hope that you will subscribe and uh, and go along for the ride with us but just to kind of give you some of my background uh, my name is Phil Lanities I w worked in MMA for about five years as a freelance publicist and uh, and content creator or writer uh, I worked for Strikeforce for a while essentially just interviewing fighters for the website I wrote under the name Johnny Preston I believe there's still some articles floating around out there with that byline on it but uh, I, I got to interview some some pretty big name guys, Daniel Cormier, uh, Josh Thompson, Gilbert Melendez, uh, even Cain Velasquez and uh, and Nick Diaz as well. Uh, Jake Shields, several several big name strike force guys and some that are still active today, which was which was really cool. I also had some just outside of strike force, had some interesting experiences within the MMA world uh, had had an event canceled literally 20 minutes before it was supposed to start at an independent event I uh, got booed out of the cage in Hawaii uh, for these are all stories that I'm sure I'll get to share as we as we go along but I just was looking to get back into podcasting I did a history podcast a few years ago kind of wanted to get back in there and scratch the creative itch and was thinking about and hey, what what are my experiences what 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 do they bring to the table as far as something that's unique and started thinking about my time in MMA and, and decided to, to push forward with that. And I got in touch, uh, back in touch with Josh and we've, we've had some really cool, uh, cool conversations. And, and so, uh, so with that, Josh, why don't you uh, jump in and, and kind of give the listeners some background and, and your involvement with, within the MMA world. Great, Phil. Thank you. Yeah. We have sort of similar paths, but I am a journalist and I worked at the San Jose Mercury news right when there was a lot of action going on with strike force and MMA. We're talking about 2006 to 2009. And I worked as a government reporter. I covered politics and government, but I have also grown up a huge uh, combat sports fan. I, I love boxing, watched a lot of boxing growing up with my dad, a lot of pro wrestling, which you're going to have to rein me in on because I'm sure I'll make more comments that many people in the audience are going to be comfortable with. Maybe, maybe we'll have a competition on that and see who can, uh, <laughs> who can bang, bang out the most pro wrestling references. Exactly. So I 
was a reporter in San Jose, and I noticed that Strike Force was, uh, you know, having events, and it was sort of this hotbed of MMA. There are a lot of gyms in the San Jose area, and nobody in our sports room at the Mercury News was really interested in MMA. They're obviously Bay Area is big for all kinds of various sports. They're interested in the big three. Uh, uh, hockey as well, you know, some soccer. And so I saw these press passes coming in, these invitations to cover these events. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be taking anybody's spot here if I cover these. And so I just offered and they're like, sure, you want to cover this? Go ahead. And so I started covering some events and I did it for, um, you know, no extra compensation or anything, just part of my regular job. And um, it was just, it's just awesome to be able to experience that and be able to be cage side and cover these events it's a whole sort of different experience it's it's different because you're working too you're you're actually you can't enjoy the fight like a fan because you're actually trying to work the event and uh, make sure you don't miss anything and so i did that and then strike force liked my work and got to talk to micah framowitz and he was very uh, supportive of me and he basically said, hey, do you want to come work for Strikeforce on the side, of course, um, not a full-time job, but just sort of as an independent contractor, and do you want to do bios, do you want to do feature stories, do you want to interview the fighters for Strikeforce.com? And of course, I was like, yes, I would love to do that. So over the years, I've been able to interview lots of fighters, uh, not as many as you, Phil, but guys like Daniel Cormier and Luke Rockhold and Tim Kennedy and Tyron Woodley and just a lot of those legends of uh, Strike Force who were coming out and big names that would eventually uh, dominate in the UFC as well for a period. So I was able to do that and then I'd write these stories. So I had this great access to these events and uh, these fighters and it's just a it's just a really great time to be able to to talk to these people and I got to tell you you know like as a political reporter I'm sort of fearless like I've interviewed the governor lots of high level political people and I should say Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger at the time but I have never been more intimidated than when you're like talking to a fighter like you know uh, Robbie Lawler while he's trying to cut weight is not in a mood to be interviewed by any means and I'd so say probably, probably most fighters aren't in the mood to be interviewed when they're cutting weight <laughs> exactly but you know how they have to do sort of that promotion right before the fight and so there's some overlap and so I just say that you know it, I have a lot of respect for MMA fighters all of them um, the guys at the top of the marquee the guys that are in the opening matchup the women of course strike force has been such a uh, you know sort of the, the women took off in strike force so there's such a iconic events in strike force involving the women and which we're going to talk about so i just uh, that's sort of how i got into mma and then after that i have written countless stories for a variety of online mma publications as well and so um, I've really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to being able to relive some of these Strike Force memories, and ultimately be able to educate perhaps a new audience about the importance of Strike Force and understanding the history of MMA. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it as well, and I'll I'll mention kind of to give everybody the the format of of how we'll be doing this, but essentially. Uh, one week we will look at a specific, we're not going to go through every Strike Force event, but we're going to go through all the major Strike Force events, which means 
essentially we're not going to cover the challenger events. Um, we will do an episode or two on the challenger events, but we're not going to cover each one individually. Uh, but we're going to cover, like I said, the major strike force events. And then um, the next week. And so basically one week we'll do a, a, an event episode and then the next week we will do some sort of interview or retrospective or something along those lines and then the next week we'll do the next uh next major event and then the, the week after that another interview or retrospective episode uh and so that's the format that we're going to use and uh we've already we've already got some great fighters strike force fighters lined up uh, to be interviewed and i'll go ahead and reveal right now that our first interview is actually going to be with the man that started it all scott coker uh who is the current uh president of Bellator MMA. Uh, he was the the CEO, the promoter of record for Strike Force MMA, and so we we, uh, we we got an interview coming up with him next week. Uh, you're gonna really enjoy it. You're gonna hear some of the inside story of of what went into making Shamrock versus Gracie happen, and what transitioned, uh, what what decided, what he what made him decide to want to transition from kickboxing into MMA. It's a very interesting story that you are not gonna want to miss. So stay tuned for that uh, next week. But uh, in the meantime, we still want to talk about Shamrock versus Gracie, uh, the very, very first uh, MMA event under the Strike Force banner. It was the first uh, California State Athletic Commission sanctioned MMA event, uh, which was, you know, which was obviously a big honor for Scott and something that he had been working towards uh, for a long time. Uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of background on Strike Force, Strike Force had actually been a kickboxing promotion for years. It started in the mid '80s um, by by Scott and then um, had had some really big. Uh, it was actually on ESPN two uh, for a while, and and they, you know, they uh, really put on some big fights in the local San Jose area. That's the, the headquarters there. Uh, and then uh, the opportunity opened up for uh, MMA to begin to be licensed in the state of, of California. And that was where we really, uh, really got to see, uh, you know, the, the kind of the genesis of MMA on, on the West Coast. This was a big deal because this was Strike Force's coming out moment. I mean, you talk about the transition from kickboxing to MMA. Scott Coker took a big risk here and had this iconic, what turned out to be an, an iconic event. The Shark Tank was sold out on this night. It was 18,265 people, and it set the MMA attendance and gate record for California for the time. That was a big deal. If you look at some of the local media from that period, the Silicon Valley, San Jose Business Journal had an interview with Scott Coker where it quotes him as saying he was expecting about 7,500 people at the show. And obviously there must have been a big walk up because the place was packed and uh, I don't think they did much papery. These were people who wanted to see this event. And it came at the same time as about a year after the UFC got super big with the Ultimate Fighter, the first season. But MMA at this time was not sort of this huge thing that's part of our lexicon and mainstream that it is today. There were a lot of people who associated MMA at this time with sort of anything goes, bare-knuckled brawls, and there was a lot of effort to try to stop this show, to put pressure on the California State Athletic Commission to not sanction it, even up until the day of the event. Up until the day of the event, there was an effort to stop the show. There was a court injunction. Obviously, it was denied, and the the event was held. So this thing was a big deal because had Scott Coker 
uh, fallen flat had, had had nobody showed up and, and remember there was no tv for this event obviously they had cameras and they recorded it but this wasn't something that was on showtime or it wasn't on cbs and there was no partnership with these other organizations this was what you know what we call in wrestling like the ultimate house show and that is what is so impressive about it they were able to have this huge event and then build off of it and it exploded and turned into strike force for a long period being a legitimate sort of player in the world of mma absolutely i mean it was you know definitely the number two promotion at least in the at least in north america um it's it's you know its birth kind of coincided with pride getting towards the end of its its time it would uh it would end the next year in 2007 and so uh, Strike Force is really the only other game in t- town as far as a national promotion. But this first event, as you said, was just a local event. It wasn't aimed at being a national thing, which is why you had it headlined by a, a local legend uh, like Frank Shabrock. And so I'll, I'll mention that I was at the very, very last Strike Force kickboxing event. Um, I was working at NBC Bay Area at the time. I was not, not a journalist. I was just a production assistant, but I used to hang out in the sports department. I was a, a sports intern for a little while. And I remember I saw uh, press passes to a kickboxing event and I I was definitely an MMA fan again a a big pro wrestling fan you know I I asked the sports director at the time Raj Mathai who's in I believe an anchor there at NBC Bay Area now I hey is anybody going and his sports uh, producer at the time Craig Fierro hey are you know anybody going and no and I was like well can I can I go and sure you know no problem I mean, we're not gonna you know run any coverage on it but you're welcome to go and so i uh took the tickets and i went i was the only journalist that showed up on press row i still have the the image in my mind i think i still have the press pass buried in a box somewhere uh but i remember that night uh kung lee was in the main event i believe josh thompson who i didn't really know who that was at that time uh but josh thompson fought on that card as well and on the back of the program it said something like coming soon shamrock versus gracie and I'm thinking, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is Ken Shamrock and Hoist Gracie. And I'm like, oh, my God, are they going to put on, you know, Ken Shamrock versus Hoist Gracie is, you know, MMA? I mean, what what is this? And uh, that was in 2005. And they were expecting, I, I come to, came to find out that they were expecting to be able to do an MMA event later in the year. But it actually took until 2006 to get the full approval of the California State Athletic Commission to to run an MMA event. Yeah, this was a big deal because you mentioned, you know, the the names uh, Shamrock and Gracie. It creates a lot of impressions in people's minds. Who is that, right? And so the Strike Force was able to sign Frank Shamrock, who was one of these original pioneers, these icons of the UFC. Sadly, he's kind of been written out of UFC history because of his very well publicized uh, disputes with Dana White. And so he's not really somebody who's part of the the UFC history and narrative of these early fighters who helped build it before it was super popular. But MMA fans and hardcore MMA fans, they know the Shamrock name. Ken Shamrock, of course, is probably the bigger name. He's done a few more things, but Frank Shamrock was this legitimate, iconic fighter of the early UFC days. So the fact that Scott Coker was able to to sign him to be on the show against Caesar Gracie, and it was just sort of this feud, right? It was like the Shamrocks versus the Gracies, and this was going to be a big deal. And lots of people 
watch the event and probably a lot of them were just thinking i'm going to see a shamrock versus a gracie and there were many others who were, who knew exactly what they were going to watch but it was definitely a big deal to kick off the strike force era with these two huge names yeah, no doubt about it. It was something where, uh, you know, they announced Shamrock versus Gracie, but a lot of the details were still being worked out. And it wasn't until January of 2006 that they officially announced uh, the, the main event of Frank Shamrock versus Caesar Gracie. Uh, this was something that had been in the works for a couple of years, specific, specifically that fight. Uh, that was not something they just signed. I mean, it had been in the works for a while. Um, the press release announcing the event really built up the grudge between Frank and Caesar, saying that it, it had been brewing for a while. Um, the press release uh, announced Caesar as having a 14-0 record. It didn't specify what his you know 14-0 record was in, but it was definitely not an MMA. Uh, this was something where you know he he had not fought in MMA before, but it had plenty of of jujitsu. Uh, you know, jujitsu battles and probably a number of street fights. But, you know, the thought is that, that, you know, that number was put in there in order to get him licensed to fight a guy like Frank Shamrock, who had um, about 30 professional MMA fights. And, and so it was probably something that was necessary, but it's not nothing new to the, to the combat sports or the pro wrestling world at all. Yeah. Scott Coker has done a tremendous job of being able to, help build MMA and strike force with sort of a sense of showmanship. And we saw this in strike force in terms of how they had their walkouts. And of course we see it now in, in Bellator and back then this was sort of like the early glimpses of this with Caesar having this mysterious 14 and O record. It's like Bill Goldberg's 121 and 0 record, or whatever, 168 and 0, whatever he got up to, um, it didn't exist, right? Wait, it wait, just are was... you su- are you suggesting that Goldberg did not squash 187 <laughs> guys in a row, or whatever it was? Well, um, I, I I don't know. All I know is I didn't see every one of those, but it's it's that's definitely... right. You weren't at hey, you weren't at every house show. You don't know. <laughs> All right. Well. I think that what Coker did was sort of uh, just sort of exploit that and just sort of say, hey, we got these two legend names and they're going to go at it. Of course, pro wrestling does this all the time. Uh, boxing has done this. Julio Cesar Chavez, he was famously you know, a, a legendary Mexican fighter. He was 89-0 and before he lost his first fight. And he had this great feud with this guy named Greg Haugen. And Haugen sort of outed him during the buildups, during the promos for the event, and said, you never fought all these people. These people didn't exist. And also... If you did, they were, he, this is him saying this, they were taxi drivers in Tijuana who you sort of just fought so you could pad your record. And it, you know, it worked because Julio Cesar Chavez was this huge legend. I mean, 89 fights. I mean, we talk about Money Mayweather and, and these guys who are undefeated for a certain amount of times. And, and you know, here's this guy from boxing who's 89 and 0. So the idea of creating this mythical record, I, I have to say that um, it's it's brilliant. And it made a big deal because it was a big deal because it created this illusion that we had these two top MMA badasses and who was going to come out the winner. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the, the basis for, you know, pretty much every fight. But in this case, there was a little bit more promotional um bluff involved in that on on you know on the caesar side because again he just didn't have 
the level of experience that you know that Frank did. But you know, there's still huge expectations and anticipation uh, around the fight. Uh, there were also a number of other uh, really well-known local fighters, as well as some legit national fighters that were announced for the card. Uh, in the months leading up to the event, you saw Josh Thompson and Clay Guida announced to be uh, to be competing for the inaugural Strike Force Lightweight Championship. Uh, Thomas at the time was a veteran. Thompson, excuse me, at the time was a veteran of both the UFC and Pride Fighting Championships. He was coming off a win in Japan, but on the national stage had just lost a uh, via a highlight reel KO. Um, to Eve Edwards in the fight before that in the UFC. I remember that. Uh, probably a lot of longtime fans remember seeing the, um, uh, the, the, the replay of that where uh, Eve kicked him in the head and kind of shin kicked him in the head, and that was the beginning of the end uh, in that fight. Uh, Guida, who was actually ha- had a very, very uh, reputable record, it was either 18-2 and two or 19-2, and two, depending on um, which database you're looking at, uh, heading into that fight, but he had a 16-fight win streak going when the press release was published announcing the fight. Ironically, uh, Guida actually lost the fight five days after the the, the event was announced, or the, his inclusion at the event was announced. Um, so, you know, that kind of changed. <laughs> there went that 16-fight win streak. Uh, but regardless, the fight for the the Strike Force Lightweight Championship would still be on. The, uh, you know, would still be on. Uh, Guida, for his part, was a former NCAA Division One wrestler. He was known for his incredible cardio. Uh, obviously, still very much known for that today. Uh, the Carpenter, and he would present a very, very big test for the local product in Josh the Punk Thompson. Uh, the event also marked the MMA debut of Sanshao kickboxing legend Kung Lee. Uh, Lee was, uh, you know, a huge star locally. And Josh, I know you're going to talk about that in just a second. But one of the one of the things people forget about Josh, or I'm sorry, about Kung, is that he was. Uh, had a very a very good res- wrestling background. I mean, he wrestled for West Valley College, which was a junior college in Saratoga, California. Uh, he won the California Junior College State Championship at 158 pounds in 1990. He also was a junior college All-American in wrestling. Uh, you know, obviously an c- incredible striker from his kickboxing background. He was 17-0, a three-time world champion uh, in kickboxing, and he wasn't completely unfamiliar with MMA either. And for those that know, San- the, don't know, Sanchao is, is a it's kick boxing but also has takedowns in it there's no ground fighting but you do score points for getting takedowns uh so i guess i guess it would be kind of like the brawl for all tournament in 1998 in wwf at the time uh that abomination of a promotional event but kind of similar where you had striking and then also takedowns. so again not completely unfamiliar uh, with how MMA would work, and uh, he had fought some MMA guys such as uh, Brian Warren, Mr. International Shoney Carter, and Brian Ebersol. Uh, and in fact, Lee's opponent at the event was going to be Mike Altman, uh, who he had defeated in kickboxing six years prior. Uh, and so, and I believe Mike Altman had a had an MMA fight uh, under his belt before going into this. So this was not going to be a situation where Kung was going to be like a fish out of water. Yeah, Kung was another one of the main events of this show. I mean, obviously, it's built around Shamrock versus Gracie, but Kung Lee was super well-known. He was somebody who was kind of a local hero among the Vietnamese-American community at the time. And uh, he had his own gym, and he was somebody who was able to bring a large crowd of people behind him. This was his crossover, his MMA debut, and Kung Lee was just, at this time, he was this mystery in terms of how good could he be in MMA. He had kicks. He threw these kicks like 
like no other MMA fighter. And then people also knew that he was no slouch on the ground. He was actually a very strong wrestler. He didn't really show a lot of that later on in his MMA career because usually his fights were so amazing in the stand-up. He either knocked you out or he got knocked out trying to knock you out. But he was somebody who had a built-in crowd, a built-in audience. Uh, you know, He was a local guy and uh, he was definitely able to draw people to the event as sort of the the second sort of you know attraction of the night yeah, and that was obviously again being this was a locally focused event not a televised event you know that was going to be a big deal in order to sell tickets uh but speaking of local guys it was also announced that undefeated 23 year old Gilbert El Nino Melendez had been added to the card. He was trained by Caesar Gracie. Uh, he was definitely a star on the rise. He's a eight and native of Southern California, and he had actually won the inaugural WEC lightweight championship just a couple years prior. And, and for those that maybe are unaware, the WEC was a big time promotion when it came to the lighter weight classes. Uh, and, and just like strike force, it was eventually bought by the, the UFC. And that's where they really built out their bantamweight and featherweight and, and also further strengthen their lightweight uh, uh, divisions. And so w, holding the WC belt, that was a, that was a big deal. And, and so Gilbert Melendez was primed to really make a big impact here. He was coming off three straight wins uh, in Shudo, the Shudo promotion in Japan, very, very much a legendary fight promotion there. Uh, he'd gotten wins over Japanese legends Rumen Asado and Hiroyuki Takaya. Uh, Melendez's opponent was initially supposed to be Dave Padilla, but he ended up not appearing in, on the card. And instead, Melez, Melendez would end up facing Harris the Hitman Sarmiento, who despite being only 22 years old, he had an astounding 32 fights under his belt coming into this bout. And uh, the the Hawaiian Sarmiento, definitely not a pushover. He'd fought Nick Diaz, Razor Rob McCullough, uh, Roger Huerta, KJ Nunes, all before stepping into the the hexagon with with Gilbert. It was definitely going to be a tough battle for El Nino. I loved watching this fight with Gilbert. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But Gilbert exemplified what Strike Force was. Strike Force was scrappy. Strike Force was hardworking. Uh, Strike Force was determined. It was fierce. It was going to make an impact in the MMA world. And you could see that in Gilbert's eyes when he entered the cage for this fight. I mean, he just was sort of the perfect guy to have on this show because he just personified what Strike Force was, was trying to do. And I really liked how. You know, later on when he would he would become uh, more famous and he would develop this reputation as being one of the top lightweights, he would talk about how this was his hexagon. And he wasn't a guy who was looking to jump ship to the UFC. He was perfectly happy with being the best fighter in Strike Force because he was part of this group early on in Strike Force who wanted to say, hey, Strike Force, we have great fighters too. It's not just the UFC. And so he took a lot of pride in that. And so I really liked watching him during this period. Yeah, he, definitely somebody that would personify Strike Force for sure. Uh, so as part of these these episodes, we also want to look at what's going on in the world of MMA. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, kind of the closest UFC and Pride events uh, are, you know, that happened around the time of, of Strike Force's major events early on. And then once, once Pride folds... Uh, you know, we'll we'll see what else is out there. Obviously, Bellator came around a few years later, and we'll start mentioning their their events once we uh, we get up to that time in history. But during this time, 
Uh, over in Pride, the event closest to Strike Force's MMA, MMA debut was Unbreakable, which was held on February 26, 2006, in Japan. Uh, featured on the card, many familiar names Mark Hunt, Quentin Rampage Jackson, former UFC heavyweight champion Tsuyoshi Kosaka, current Bellator star Sergey Haritanov, uh, the legendary Minotaro Nogueira, future Strike Force and UFC stars Fabricio Verdun and Alistair Overeem. Uh, definitely a notable event, but the, probably the most notable fight from the card was the co main event, which saw Mark the Hammer Coleman take on Mauricio Shogun Hua. Uh, in that fight, if you remember, Coleman took Shogun down and, and, and Shogun kind of posted his arm. Uh, to protect himself while he was being taken down, which they say is not a good idea, and you could, we all found out why uh, in this fight. Uh, when, uh, when, when, as soon as he hit the mat, who was uh, elbow dislocated, Coleman was not aware of it, and he goes on the attack and kind of loses his cool. He actually, it's an incredible uh, clip if you, if you want to look it up, but he throws the referee, just tosses him to the side, and Shogun's uh, his fight team shoot box, they jump in and. Coleman's hammer house teammates, they jump in and get involved. It turns into this big melee and Coleman's trying to apologize on the mic, but shootbox, they're still trying to approach him. I remember somebody's arm, you know, like in the camera shot, like pointing in Coleman's face. I mean, it was a definitely a memorable moment uh, in pride history and just in MMA history as a whole. Uh, and then over in the UFC, we had UFC 58 USA versus Canada. It took place six days before Shamrock versus Gracie. Uh, and as you might guess, most of the fights featured uh, fighters from the U.S. versus fighters from Canada. Again, a lot of recognizable names on this card, especially to, to hardcore longtime fans. Uh, Sam Stout, Spencer Fisher, Mark Hominick, Eve Edwards, future Strike Force welterweight champion Nate Marcourt, and Mike Swick, uh, who is a veteran of the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, on the main card, there was some guy named George St. Pierre <laughs> on, on the card. He made his uh, his, his uh, seventh UFC appearance. He beat BJ Penn, uh, the legend, via split decision. And in the main event, we saw Rich Franklin outclass David Loazzo in defense of his UFC middleweight championship, beating the Canadian via unanimous decision with some, I don't remember any five-round championship fights with this type, these type scores, but 50-43, 50-43, and 50-42, so definitely a thorough thrashing uh, on Franklin part, Franklin's part of Lawasso. Hey, quickly, you know, you mentioned uh, Shogun Hua and that clip that people have to watch if they haven't seen it already, and then you mentioned Nate Marcourt, and I wanted to just sort of jump in and <laughs> remind you, like, I... This fight, okay, so the great thing about Strike Force is that we saw so many of these fighters before they made it to this larger national stage in the UFC, and there's an amazing fight between Nate Marquardt and Tyron Woodley, and Woodley was, he was young, right? He, he was not the fighter that he is today, but he was a rising star, and this fight, I mean, he was certainly the favorite favored uh, fighter going into this. And in this fight, this is one of the most brutal knockouts you are ever going to see. Markor hit him, like, just flush on the chin, and then he elbowed him. And Tyron Woodley, the, you know, the, the great fighter in the UFC that he would become, I mean, this guy was out before he hit the mat. And you, if you have not seen this clip, go on YouTube, look it up. And um, I think it was probably one of the reasons Woodley's a, a tremendous fighter. He's a great fighter. He can go the distance sometimes. He can fight defensively. He can hold back even though he has dynamite in his fists. And I think maybe 
it might be because of the fact that he knows what that feels like to be knocked out in the most brutal sort of way. So you learn a lot about Woodley and the fighter he would become by watching this fight. Of course, you know, if they ever had a rematch like Kung Lee and Scott Smith or something, I'm sure Woodley would have turned the tables really quickly. But um, on this night, this was one of the most devastating knockouts I've ever seen in MMA. Yeah, and both Marquardt, I mean, Marquardt headlined the very last Strike Force event. So we'll, you know, we'll, it'll be a while, but we'll talk about him again. And then Tyron, of course, uh, he's somebody that we will talk more about, you know, as we get a little further along. I actually got to know Tyron a little, little bit. I actually picked him up from the airport for one of his Strike Force fights in the Bay Area. Um, kind of a, you know, quiet guy in person, but definitely not, you know, soft spoken. But as we were preparing for this, and I, I read, Josh, I read your notes and, and saw you reference this, that knockout. I, I didn't recall it. I didn't remember it off the top of my head. So I, I looked it up and it is absolutely one of the just, I mean, most flush uppercuts that finished Tyron off. I mean, it was a walkaway knockout where Marquardt knew he had won. And I mean, man, it, it is just brutal. So it's, it's definitely worth looking up if you're, uh, you're into that sort of thing. And if you're listening to this podcast, I would guess that you probably are. Um, but with that, let's uh, let's jump into Shamrock versus Gracie. Let's get back to 2006, talk about some of the, the details. So it took place at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, now called the SAP Center, more commonly known as the Shark Tank. It's the home of the San Jose Sharks NHL team. Uh, the event was a sellout, as mentioned by Josh, 18,265 in attendance. Um, they would set the record at that time for the largest MMA crowd in North American history, which, of course, has since been, uh, since been eclipsed. But, it, I mean, for your first event... For you to sell out and you know hit get eighteen thousand over eighteen thousand into the arena, I mean with no TV, I mean that that's a pretty amazing uh, accomplishment. There's just no doubt about that. Uh, there's no there there are videos of various fights on the card that you can find online, um, but nothing where it's the you know the event with commentators over it for the whole thing. I did find a play-by-play summary at the oratory.com. So a special shout out to them. Uh, and we'll also, uh, we also use tapology.com to kind of put the pieces together. Of course, various news sources such as Sherdog and MMA weekly and MMA junkie and that sort of thing. But it was definitely uh, a special night with a very much a big fight feel. Yeah. Even though this was not anything that was televised or on Showtime, it had little aspects to it that made it feel Super important and meaningful. Jimmy Lennon Jr., son of the legendary ring announcer. Of course, he's a legend in his own right. Uh, he did the ring introductions for this event, and that made it feel so important. You may not have known every fighter top to bottom on this card, but you knew that if Jimmy Lennon Jr. was there, that it was an important sort of big event. You know, He was at the time the voice of Showtime and, and boxing, and he was somebody who you associated with importance and, and substance. And so that was kind of a cool thing, was that he was able to, to be there and introduce these fighters, and it was just helped contribute to making the show something a little bit more than just a live event at the, at the Shark Tank. Yeah, and I was there that night. I believe me and my brother-in-law went, and uh, it was it was definitely a special atmosphere. I mean, there's no doubt that it, it, you could just feel that there was something in the air that it, it was going to be a big-time event, and having somebody like Jimmy Lennon Jr. there uh, definitely helped, um, as did things like having pyrotechnics and just, you know, the, the, the stage and the cage and, and all that stuff. 
uh, definitely a, a big time event. But let's jump over into the undercard. Definitely some some well known fighters, uh, some that you know you maybe have pr- most likely have never heard of. Um, but let's let's walk through the undercard fights. The very first fight in uh, Strikeforce history was a middleweight bout between Scott Graham and Chris Yee. Uh, Graham defeated Yee via rear naked choke at 237 of the second round. Both fighters 1-0 heading into the bout. Graham would go on to fight two more times in Strikeforce, ending his career with a 3-1 record, while Yee would never compete in Strikeforce again, ending his career in 2010 with a 4-6 record. Moving on to the next fight, Crafton Wallace beat Ray Routh via a KO brought on by a knee at 35 seconds of the second round. Uh, from what I read, a back-and-forth bout in the first round, both fighters scoring with some strikes. Uh, it sounds like Routh really began to, to gas out, and Wallace ended it with some knees from the tie plum early in the second round, moving his record to 7-1-1. One, and one. Wallace is, might be a name that you, you, you possibly recognize. He was a champion kick, pick, kickboxer who had fought in Chuck Norris's World Combat League. He would go on to get a shot in the UFC, though he was submitted in both of the bouts he was in. Never fought in strike force again, but he did end up with a very respectable 18-6-1 record for his MMA career, which ended uh, in 2011. Uh, Ralph, for his part, he fell to 1-1 after this bout and only fought one more time in MMA, winning a regional bout later in the year uh, in Idaho. Uh, just one thing that was sort of interesting with Ralph, he came to uh, the cage with a, lot, a little bit of showmanship, a little bit of flair. He had a Red Hot Chili Peppers Give It Away song, and Josh Koscheck was in his corner for that for that fight, so that was kind of interesting. Josh Koscheck, of course, was coming off of uh, the Ultimate Fighter one and sort of being a personality from that show, and would go on to be a good UFC fighter as well. Uh, the crowd was a little bit uh, uh, they booed this one before the end, uh, probably just a lot of anticipation to to get up to the the bigger guys on the show. Uh, they might have been booing because they saw Koscheck, not not exactly the most popular, <laughs> most popular guy in MMA. One of one of the heels of MMA, whether deserved or not. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> uh, but speaking of showmanship, uh, in the next fight we saw Daniel Pewter beat Jesse Fujarchik. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, via rear naked choke at 154 of the first round. Now Pewter is a name that again, if you're a longtime wrestling fan, you probably recognize that name. Possibly an MMA fan, you, you might know it, but. Uh, something of a nationally known personality. He had competed on WWE's Tough Enough reality show, winning it in 2004. Uh, perhaps his most well-known mo- moment was when he caught 1996 Olympic gold medalist uh, and WWE star and now Hall of Famer Kurt Angle in a Kimura in the ring during a challenge on SmackDown. Uh, you can definitely look this up on YouTube. I mean, he had him dead to ripes uh, in that Kimura, and uh, the referee like counted Pewter's shoulders down, even though one of his shoulders was up. So Kurt kind of technically won, but you know, the scuttlebutt around the wrestling industry is that that was done in order to kind of save face uh, for, for, for Kurt. Uh, but Kurt would, uh, I'm sorry, Pewter would go on to have a kind of an off and on pro wrestling career. He'd continue on in MMA, fought in strike force three more times. Uh, kind of one of the, the, you know, the main fighters on strike force undercards, uh, for, for a while, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about his career as we go along in this in this podcast series. Pewter was an enigma because he was good at both pro wrestling and MMA, and the thing that he had, certainly in pro wrestling, was this incredible charisma, and on, on this night, you could see that. I mean, he, he came to the cage, he had that shirt on, he was just in full 100% 
control of the moment. And I mean, he was able to basically on national TV and, you know, SmackDown back then when millions more people watched the show then than they do today. And he basically punked out Kurt Angle, one of the top stars of that time on TV. And the referee had to like save the moment in order to not make their wrestler look like he was um, inferior to the MMA guy. And, you know, Pewter, he was, uh, probably what he did with Kurt Angle was the worst thing he could have ever done in pro wrestling because uh, later on, the old-time pro wrestler guys, they roughed him up, they went stiff, uh, you know, they, they beat him up in a couple of uh, very famous matches, uh, you know, Big Show with his frying pan-like right hand slaps to the chest in one of the Royal Rumbles, and that was a big deal. And then Pewter in MMA, he, he was very good too, um, I guess. You know, he did a lot of other things that he was successful at, but it was interesting to sort of just uh, watch Pewter in this moment take that heat that he had built in pro wrestling in the WWE and transfer it into a babyface, popular good guy character at this Strike Force event. I mean, he—you mentioned the the shirt he was wearing, which said "I hurt Kurt," so he he definitely had no qualms about. Uh, you know, using whatever it took to promote. And, you know, it, it worked. He was a local to San Jose, got a big, big time crowd reaction. Uh, and, and, you know, it was, again, somebody we'll discuss in future episodes. Uh, but, but a successful return to him for, for MMA. Um, after this loss, for his part, Jesse Fujarczyk uh, fought two more times in MMA. Once later in 2006, and he lost to some nobody that went on to do nothing, uh, a guy named Cain Velasquez, uh, <laughs> which, which is interesting because it was Cain's very first MMA bout, and it was uh, Fujarczyk's very last MMA bout, which ended his career at 3-2. and two. And again, Cain's somebody that we will... Uh, we will be discussing very soon because, like I said, is he fought in Strike Force. It was the only time he fought in that promotion, uh, and it was not too long after this fight. So we'll, we'll discuss him soon. Phil, are we going to talk about the epic Cain Velasquez Brock Lesnar Saudi Arabia match? I I don't think that we will be discussing that in in, uh, in uh, we couldn't discuss it in long form if we wanted to since it lasted what like two minutes, um, and then since Kane's been released from from WWE during the kind of the COVID cuts and and that sort of thing I don't you know I don't know that he's going to get that win back or not um, you know <laughs> I I don't think we'll be discussing that too much though you know I, I'm thinking he's going to get it back you know in AEW in like 2025. Yeah, <laughs> when Brock when Brock's tired of sitting out and he's ready to make some more money, I guess we'll I guess we'll see. Um, all right, jumping back to strike to strike force. Uh, so we had Brian Ebersol in the next match top Matt Horwich via unanimous decision. Uh, we got two much more uh, much more experienced MMA fighters in this bout as I, Ebersol went to thirty two and eleven after this win, while Horwich dropped to sixteen and six. Uh, it was a, a pretty much a plotting affair. Neither fighter really stood out, uh, although Ebersol was clearly the, the guy that, that should have his hand raised at the end, and he was. Uh, Ebersol actually fought Kung Lee in a kickboxing bout the year before this event, losing via unanimous decision. So uh, somebody that didn't just you know fight in MMA but dabbled in, in kickboxing as well. Uh, Ebersol, for his part, he would never fight in strike force again, but would go on to definitely make it in the UFC. It's interesting because perhaps one of the things he's most known for is, is uh, eccentricity. I mean, he, he would sh- uh, uh, 
shave different symbols in his chest hair. <laughs> uh, he won a fight night bonus in the UFC for wearing these super skimpy speedo style trunks in a fight. And Dana White said at the post fight press conference that he gave him a bonus just so he could go buy f- new fight gear. Uh, and he retired in 2016 with a 51, 18 and one record in MMA. Uh, Horowitz would also never fight in strike force again either. Uh, he went on to have a very respectable for career, uh, career for himself. However, he won the IFL middleweight championship, which the IFL for a while was, you know, being talked about as a possible con- competitor with the UFC. Uh, he would also go on to fight in both Bellator and the UFC itself, beating names such as Benji Radich, Mike Pyle, Jared Rochelle, and Talis Lydis during his career. Uh, he last fought in 2017, and he has, uh, as of now, a 31 25 and one record. All right, moving along, we saw in the next bout Mike Mac Kyle take on Christoph the Project Shoshinsky, which ended in a technical draw after a thumb to Shoshinsky's eye at 202 of the first round. Uh, Kyle and Shoshinsky, two names that most longtime MMA, MMA fans will recognize. Uh, kind of unfortunately, Kyle was known, even though he was a local San Jose uh, product. Um, he, he was known as somebody that, that had developed a, rela- a, a reputation as something of a dirty fighter. Um, he, he'd done some things in the past and would do some things in the future that were extremely, extremely questionable. Before this event, uh, he had need his longtime friend Justin Eilers, the, the late Justin Eilers, below the belt in a fight. Uh, and then he left, I remember this very well, I want to say it was UFC 47. Uh, he left bite marks on the chest of Wes Sims in a UFC bout. I mean, I, and I remember... Kyle won the fight and they're doing the, you know, the, the referee raising the hand in the middle of the cage thing, uh, afterwards. And you can see Sims pointing to the bite mark on his chest and, and the cameraman zooming in. And it was very clear. You could definitely, uh, see it. And unfortunately this bout would also end in controversy as Kyle hit Shoshinsky below the belt before accidentally thumbing him in the eye. Shoshinsky was unable to continue and the, uh, the ref waved the bout off. Uh, and since the thumb was, was deemed unintentional, the bout was ruled a, a technical draw. Yep. Maybe uh, when they were talking about the buildup and some of the concerns around the show, I mean, it's possible that some of these people were shown videos of, of Kyle and, and, and the bite marks <laughs> because yeah. that's, ex- that's exactly the kind of stuff who, you know, people who did not understand the art of MMA would point to. They, they'd sort of point to the, those elements of, of, of um, sort of street fighting, of course. But, you know, that was so rare. You know, stuff like that very rarely happened. It was certainly not as bad as Mike Tyson biting off a piece of Evander <laughs> Holyfield's well, earlobe. True, <laughs> true. But, uh, but to be fair, in the late 90s, I mean, when the, you know, it was Bob Meyerowitz and that group that were, you know, SEG, the SEG area for the UFC, I mean, they that's what they led with they led with the you remember seeing the i think it was joe's like i think it was uh, keith hackney versus joe son if i remember right and he's just mm-hmm. punching him in the cup like over and over again and mm-hmm. you know basically no rules i mean chemo getting his hair grabbed and punched in the face and i mean that's they it was a blood sport that's how it was promoted early on and i'm not saying mike kyle was trying to do that i i don't think it was it was that i mean i i, I can't get inside his head and you know maybe we'll talk to him at some point i i you know for this podcast but I, you know, I don't think it was necessarily, tr- you know, something that he was trying to do in order to, you know, oh, hey, we're extreme and, you know, we're 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 going to be the ECW of of MMA or anything like that. Um, I, I just, you know, whatever gets in his head and, and and you know, it's led to those types of things. But in this case, it, it at least appeared to be accidental, and that's how the 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 referee ruled it. 
Yeah, so we're talking about Sojinsky. He was uh, a little bit of a pro wrestler. He had a little bit of a pro wrestling background. He was a Polish citizen, and he was a Canadian citizen. Uh, he was a Canadian citizen as well, and he had done some training under Don Callis in Canada. There's a really cool video of him on YouTube, Fight Hub TV, where he talks about all the wrestlers he's met and all the wrestlers he trained with, King Kong Bundy, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, ECW legend Sabu, and he sort of credits uh, Chris Jericho for helping him develop his own sort of character and persona beyond just being a fighter. And so that makes sense because we know that Sojinsky had a little bit of a successful career in Hollywood. So it's just kind of cool because there's a lot of overlap with uh, pro wrestling and MMA and even these MMA fighters who are like, you know, super tough. I mean, Sojinsky looked like, you know, Ivan Drago from the Rocky movies. I mean, he was just incredibly intense and ferocious but a lot of these guys had a lot of respect for uh, for pro wrestling and they were able to take a little bit of that character development into into the cage and their personality and Sajinsky was definitely one of them oh yeah absolutely. i mean you chael sun and tito ortiz frank shamrock i mean these are all guys that knew how to sell a fight and it was very clear that pro wrestling influenced you know from from influenced them from cutting a promo to you know getting the ire of their opponents up to, you know, all, all, all that stuff. I mean, it's very, whether people in, you know, the MMA purists, so to speak, want to admit it or not, there is a lot more, cro- uh, you know, crossover. And really, truthfully, there may be no better example of that than Chael Sonnen, because I saw Chael on the under, you know, fighting on the undercard in person um, when, I, when I was working in MMA and, you know, not really known for his personality. And then he decided to kind of develop this persona as the bad guy and, things changed for him and he started getting big fights and making money and, and all of that stuff. So again, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but, uh, Shoshinsky, uh, never fought in, in strike force. Again, he did go on to fight in the UFC a bunch of times. He got some big wins beating Brian Stan and Stefan Bonner before retiring from MMA in 2014 with a 26, 12 and one record. Uh, and then you, you, Josh, you'd mentioned him being in Hollywood. He starred uh, as Kevin James' character's main rival in Here Comes the Boom, the MMA uh, movie that came out several years back. So, you know, he's, he's gone on to do some things there. Mike Kyle would fight eight more times in Strike Force, get some big wins, and we'll des- definitely be discussing him more in the future, and we'll probably look to get him on the show uh, for an interview at some point. All right, so now we move to the main event of the undercard. Eugene Jackson won against Jorge Naked Man Ortiz via unanimous decision. Uh, as with with Ebersol versus Horwich, the Oratory.com kind of gave this fight a, a bit of a dud rating, called it a, quote, dull match indeed, end quote. Uh, Jackson, who had actually compiled a 3-4 and four record in the UFC before his Strikeforce de- debut, would go on to fight three more times for Strikeforce. Uh, so uh, somebody that you'll hear his name again. Ortiz, for his part, would never fight for Strikeforce again, but he did fight. Uh, he has been fighting pretty regularly. In fact, he actually fought as recently as 2019, and he currently holds a 19-9-1 and record. All right, let's jump into the main card. Uh, and kicking things off, there was a, a guy named Nate Diaz. Uh, that that kicked things off on the main card. Uh, this was only his third professional fight, but he t- TKO'd Tony Juarez at 3.23 of the first round. Uh, could not find any footage or reviews of this fight, but uh, again, it was Nate's uh, third fight in MMA. 
Uh, Juarez, who was actually, they were both one and one heading into this bout. Obviously, uh, their careers have gone in completely different directions since this time. Uh, Nate has gone on to be one of the very, very biggest uh, stars in MMA. Uh, one, you know, one of the the most bankable guys that in, in the in the UFC today. Uh, so obviously, big deal for him. And but Juarez, for his part, unfortunately, he has not won a fight since since that one and one record. Uh, he is one and twelve for his career, and his last fight actually took place just a few years ago in 2017. Uh, I you know mean no disrespect to uh, to Mr. Juarez. Anybody that's willing to get the, into the cage uh, deserves a certain amount of respect. Um, you know, despite their record, but neither fighter would fight in strike force again, which, you know, kind of a bummer for me. I wish we could have seen Nate. Uh, he, he went over to the WEC and that's where he really made his name before, um, heading into the UFC, but, uh, but a very interesting fight to kick off, uh, the main card. All right, then we move on to the, the second fight of the main card, Gilbert Melendez, El Nino. He overcame the the hitman Harris Sarmiento via submission due to punches at 44 seconds of the second round. Again, Gil was undefeated at 8-0 coming into this fight. Sarmiento was 20-12 and despite being slightly younger, as we mentioned earlier. I, I, I kind of came up with this little, uh, this little fact, this little nugget of information that I thought was interesting was that uh, Melendez actually fought on the very last card that Frank Shamrock, Shamrock had competed on, which was WE6, uh, almost exactly three years before this bout. So very interesting that he would fight on Shamrock's last card before coming into Strike Force and fighting on his first card back in MMA. Uh, but again, definitely a star on the on the rise. Someone Strike Force had been looking to build around, uh, and and you know him being local and undefeated was was definitely a big deal. Yeah, I, this fight is on YouTube, and it's kind of interesting because Melendez, he's he's full of hunger. I, I I just this guy is just like such a the epitome of what a a great fighter is, and he was just full of hunger. He he was young, and you could tell that he was gonna go after it in this fight. But early on, he he did get caught with with sort of a a little bit of a runny knee, and it was hard to tell from the angle as to whether it was fully, whether it fully connected with his chin or not, but it did back him up. The crowd did sort of make this wild reaction like it was a good shot. Melendez certainly at this time had a chin of steel, so we don't really know if he was uh, somebody who, you know, if that that knee would have knocked somebody else out. But I think what was interesting to me about this this fight was that Gilbert was just so hungry, just so young, and you could sort of, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. You don't know what everyone's going to become, but if you had to sort of predict that, hey, one of these people is going to become a really big star and one of the best fighters in MMA, you'd look at Gilbert and say, I'm putting my money on this guy. He just had this look in his eyes. Yeah, definitely somebody that would end up living to the living up to the hype. Uh, but uh, but going back to the fight in the first round, uh, we saw. Uh, Melendez takes Sarmiento down, lands some good ground and pound in the second. As you mentioned, Sar- Sarmiento hurts Melendez, uh, but El Nino is able to, to land a takedown anyway, starts dropping some really heavy bombs, and after eating some big elbows, Sarmiento has had enough, uh, and he taps out. So uh, a big win for the uh, for, for uh, Gilbert Melendez, and it set him up, I you know, I, I don't know that this was, you know, in the, in, you know, the plan necessarily, but it was obviously, uh, you know, situation where he was being positioned and that he was going to be in line to take on the winner of Clay Guida versus Josh Thompson uh, for the inaugural Strike Force Lightweight Championship, which would be happening later in the evening as we've discussed. 
All right, just a few bouts left on this card. Uh, but in the next fight, we saw the aforementioned Kung Lee knock out Mike Altman with a punch at 351 of the first round. And and speaking of stars that Scott Coker was looking to build around, uh, Kung Lee made it, you know, like we said, made his MMA debut at Shamrock versus Gracie, a practitioner of Sanshao, uh, which again is a form of kickboxing that includes takedowns but no groundwork. Very, very much a local star. He got a big pop when he came out to the cage. Uh, he was born in Vietnam but spent a lot of his life uh growing up in the bay area did lee and you know very large contingent of vietnamese uh in in the bay area just uh, there's a lot of asians period in, in the bay area and so uh you know lee was somebody that was really primed to be a big star on a local level for sure but would go on go on to become a, a national star as well uh he was of course known for a striking ability but again was a very very good wrestler so there was you know it was likely fighting a guy like altman that he'd beaten in kickboxing a few years prior you know it was again likely that uh they were going to keep it on the feet uh but uh but yeah, you know, this was definitely expected to be a, a you know a showcase opportunity uh, for Kung Lee, and he did not disappoint at all. Uh, the fight stayed on the feet the whole time. Neither a fighter attempted any takedowns, uh, and Lee he he shows off his wide array of strikes, and he ends up catching Altman with a right high kick to the head that sets up a short right hook, which drops Altman to the uh, to the face uh, to the mat face first, which which ended the match. Yeah, and. Kung Lee won the fight with the, the right hand, but really it was those kicks that Altman was wary of and, you know, he was getting hit by. And that made the difference. I mean, Kung Lee was multidimensional and his kicks were really movie set type kicks, but they were real. I mean, they, they weren't fake. They, they were vicious. You could, if you were anywhere near him when he was fighting or when he was working out, I mean, you could feel these kicks like on your body. You were so happy that you weren't the recipient of these things. And that's, he just had this wicked uh, way of delivering those kicks with all of his body. And that's why there was so much anticipation about what would happen in MMA. And because if you didn't get Kung Lee down, I mean, we knew that he was also a really good wrestler, but you, you weren't really going to match up with him uh in the stand-up, you know, we, you know, later on we would see him face a little bit higher competition, and we'd sort of see a different outcome. But I mean, he was just relentless. He was vicious, and I mean, I think that we've had a lot of good kickboxers in MMA, but uh, Kung Lee, his kicks, I mean, he had to be among the best, most strongest, wicked kickers in the history of MMA. Absolutely, and just overall one of the most exciting fighters in MMA history. One of my absolute favorite guys to watch. Uh, and somebody that we will uh, hopefully have on the podcast uh, at some point. But so while it was not a competitive fight, Lee did get to show off those striking chops to a new audience. And Altman, for his part, he fought one more time in MMA later in 2006, losing to future UFC vet Elliot the Fire Marshal. All right, so now uh, we move on to uh, the co-main event, which saw Clay Guida win his only major MMA championship when he took a unanimous unanimous decision after five rounds from Josh the Punk Thompson. Uh, as we mentioned, Guida was coming off a loss coming into the bout, but was still uh, still had a great record, while Thompson was 8-1 and one with wins over Hermes Franca and Razor Rob McCullough. Uh, this was an absolute barn burner of a fight, just a, a, you know, kind of the consensus pick for a fight of the night. 
Uh, Guido won the first two rounds with his usual frenetic pace, caused a lot of swelling in Thompson's right eye. Uh, in the third round, and this is interesting, Thompson catches Guida in a guillotine choke, uh, but but Guida was able to get out. He was able to escape, but the ref actually stopped the fight temporarily to warn Guida about raking Thompson's eyes, which is which is interesting. Um, I I can't swear to this, but I feel like I've I've seen. Uh, possible allegations of greasing on Guida's part before the you know unsubstantiated. I'm not saying that that's true or anything, but but not known as a dirty fighter. Uh, but it actually got so bad that the the referee actually took a point away later in that round due a re- doing due to a recurrence of of the tactic of of raking the eyes. Uh, but Guida, for his part, he keeps up the the pace in the championship rounds, and Thompson simply just does not have an answer for it. Uh, he would catch. Guida here and there with a submission attempt or a strike, but, but Guida would just always escape and, you know, always recover and get back to his relentless takedowns and ground and pound. And it served him well. Uh, in the end, it was uh, 49-46, 49-45, and 49-45 in favor of Guida, who, again, that was, to date, his only major MMA title. Uh, Thompson, post-fight, complained about the eye gouging, but, but you know, it, it, it was what it was, and Guida was the guy that got his hand raised. You can find us on Instagram on Clay Guida's Instagram, but what was cool about this was that Chuck Norris, martial arts legend, movie star, he presented the championship belt to um, Clay after the fight. Uh, he was wearing this. He was dressed up. He was wearing this, you know, black shirt, tan pants. Jimmy Lennon Jr. knew about it. He introduced Chuck Norris and said, you know, he's going to present the championship belt here. And uh, apparently it was Chuck Norris's birthday, uh, but he's a, obviously a big martial arts fan, and you know, I'm sure he had connections with people in the building. And uh, anyway, he presented the belt, and that was one of those things that added just another flair, a little bit of a, a dimension to this show, that this was a big deal. There's important people that everybody is familiar with, and uh, they are taking this seriously. So me as a fan... I can get into this. I don't have to be embarrassed that I'm watching this local show. This is a big deal, and this company's going someplace. Yeah, having Chuck Norris there, definitely a a stamp of credibility, um, no doubt about that. All right, so now we have finally arrived at at the uh, what we've all what we've all gathered here for, so to speak, the the main event. And in that, we saw Frank Shamrock knock out Caesar Gracie at only 21 seconds of the first round. Uh, this video is, you can find this video on YouTube. It, it, it's, it's definitely around and I, I watched it and you could see some of the footage of the pre-fight video packages from that, that the, those, those pre-fight video packages. It is very clear that Frank is being framed as the hero, you know, the baby face, the local star. Uh, he talks about this fight being very personal for him, that uh, he's extremely proud to be fighting out of San Jose, how much he wants to make a difference in the world. Caesar, for his part, no you know, pre-fight video packages, but it, it's definitely clear that Frank is the guy that's being painted as the star. And the quick thing you noticed right away is that, as was the case in all of Frank's fights, tremendous physical shape. I mean, he looked like a, a bodybuilder, very low percentage of fat, and uh, he was just somebody who you wanted to watch fight because he looked like a million bucks. And, I mean, he had to be one of these guys who had one of the best, uh, you know, sort of physiques in MMA history. Yeah, no doubt. He always looked like a star. He always looked, he looked, always looked to be in amazing shape and, and, and all that. And this, this fight was no difference. Uh, so, again, Caesar, no f- pre-fight video package for him. He comes out to the cage to the sounds of Queens, We Will Rock You. Frank comes out to hypnotize by no- Notorious B.I.G., gets some some pyro. 
course, a big pop from the sold-out crowd as he strides to the ring in a San Jose Sharks jersey, of course. Hey, uh, what's with uh What's with Frank coming out with the East Coast uh, rap? What's yeah, that's it. Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's 2006, so kind of the whole East Coast West Coast thing is kind of dead. You know, that's not really <laughs> a thing anymore. But you know, he definitely probably would have done better coming out to something from Tupac. Uh, I think that probably would have gone gone over a little bit better in the uh, in the West Coast. Um, I don't that you know that said, I don't know that there's a massive crossover between you know gangster rap, you know, hip hop, West Coast, East Coast, you know, ra- uh, rap fans and MMA. Uh, I, you know, I guess I could be wrong, but, but, uh, but yeah, he probably would have done better to come out to, you know, something like I get around or something along those lines. Cal- He's got to come out to California love. Oh, California love. love. You no, know, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Dr. <laughs> Dre. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but yeah, for whatever reason he chooses hypnotize, uh, you know, does get the, the, you know, the big crowd reaction. Uh, Caesar, for his part, you can see he's seconded by Nick Diaz, who was his student, as well as John Hackleman, another guy I recognized, Chuck Liddell's trainer, which was, you know, pretty interesting. And and Gracie, you know, he got it. To be fair, he got a good round of applause when he was announced in the cage. People don't uh, may may not realize this, but Caesar lives in the Bay Area. He was announced as being from Concord, which is not far from the Bay Area. He's got schools in San Francisco, I believe, in Pleasanton as well. Uh, you know, this is not a guy that you know they brought in from from the outside. This was the guy with strong Bay Area roots as well. Somebody that probably sold tickets on you know on on his part, and and so you know let's let's be fair here. This was not you know local guy versus the outsider. This was two this was two local guys, and it was reflected when Caesar got his name announced, and you know. The, nothing wrong with that um but uh but yeah caesar gets a you know a nice round of applause uh and uh they touch gloves i I remember uh in the uh uh the stare down before the fight they only had the the camera on frank's face so you can't see caesar but frank had an extremely intense look on his face and uh he was clearly ready to go and and it didn't last long they they touch gloves and 21 seconds later uh it's over shamrock they they try he tries a kick uh he catches ends up catching gracie behind the ear with a right hand sends him to the canvas and shamrock follows up and you you could see the referee in my op- opinion the referee didn't really stop the fight I, I felt like frank did like he kind of got up off him and, and to me the referee was out of position i'd actually seen this referee before at other events uh, i i felt like he was not a great choice but that's up to the commission that's not and there was not a wealth of of experienced mma referees at this time as you would probably guess but either way uh frank you know kind of kind of Frank was, in my opinion, based on the camera views, looked like he was the guy that actually stopped the fight. Yeah, I think Frank knew the fight was over. One little thing was uh, the Gracie team did throw in the towel. I don't think anybody saw it, and the towel was thrown in after the fight was clearly over. It was sort of behind the referee's back. Shamrock was already celebrating, and uh, the referee never saw it. So I think there's a little bit of uh, the fight's over and we don't want our, our mentor, our teacher, our hero to, to look you know bad here in this outcome. So uh, there, you know, there was an effort to sort of just end it uh, mercifully. Which is, you know, brings up the question of who threw in the towel. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's maybe, you know, you can make a case for a guy like John Hackleman doing it because, you know, he maybe he doesn't have as much invested in it being that Caesars, you know, he's not... Uh, you know, this is a kind of a one-off thing, I think. And, you know, but then you can make a case for Nick doing it because he doesn't, like you said, doesn't want to see his trainer, uh, you know, looking bad as well. And so maybe there's an opportunity to kind of save a little bit of face there, but either way, regardless of of how it went, the fight was over Uh, after the fight, Shamrock and Gracie, they do hug and show some respect, but Gracie seems 
to be unhappy with the stoppage. You can see mm-hmm. uh, MMA and kickboxing legend Maurice Smith in uh, Frank Shamrock's corner, and you can see Caesar talking to him afterwards, and kind of like, you know, uh, really they stopped it, and it's, you know, it, it it's it's kind of hard to hard to be able to tell whether or not Gracie was really truly out, or if it was more of a, a flash knock, you know, knockout like. Uh, Frank's adopted brother Ken was, you know, kind of fell victim to several times where he got knocked out, but then just seemed to wake up just a split second later. But uh, yeah, Gracie didn't seem super happy with the with the stoppage from what I saw. Yeah, it, I mean, probably there was no way out for him. Uh, Shamrock was already celebrating, and the fight was over because Caesar Gracie didn't have a lot of or any MMA experience that we know of. It's hard to know what he would have done. I think with some fighters, you sort of see what they're made of when they have that those kind of adversarial circumstances. Uh, could he have pulled Frank into his guard? Uh, could he have made something happen? Uh, probably not. Uh, and, and I think that it didn't matter anyway because the fight was over. Uh, they threw in the towel. But, I mean, he lost his balance. Uh, Frank hit him kind of above the ear, probably... Uh, just, you know, rocked him in a spot where he kind of just lost his equilibrium. And as we know, when that happens, it's Im- almost impossible to be able to to come back. You know, he did seem to, like, open guard on the ref a little bit. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> if you watch it on YouTube, it might have just been experience. Uh, maybe he was trying to uh, lure Shamrock on the ground because that was going to be his best experience. But, I mean, I don't think there's any way he's coming back from that, um, it, it was clearly over. Yeah, I mean, I, I doubt Frank would have gone to the guard with him because you know there'd be that'd be the only place he could lose. And and while Frank was no slouch slouch on the ground, I mean, he had fought successfully in Pancrase. I mean, the, the, he was very well rounded. So you know, I, I think he maybe from an ego standpoint would have wanted to match wits. Uh, you know, on the in the jujitsu side of things, but I, I just, you know, Frank's a very cerebral fighter. I just don't see him going down there knowing that that's going to be the only place where he might lose. So, um, but regardless, you know, it was over with. Afterwards, Shamrock gives a very rousing interview. Says he's back as a fighter. That you know, hey, we can. This is my house. We can do this again at the Shark Tank. Uh, and they would do another fight in just a few months, which we'll we'll talk about uh, very very in, in two weeks. We'll talk about that event. Uh, but it is one more note before we uh, we close things up for today. It's interesting uh, that we learned that Caesar actually tested positive for Delta Nine THC, which is the active ag- ingredient in marijuana. He was suspended for three months. It didn't matter. He never fought again. That was that was the end of his MMA career. Uh, and he is still running jujitsu schools in the Bay Area, and I'm sure doing doing very well. But uh, very much a, a very very successful uh, opening effort for uh, for for Strike Force. Uh, you know, there's just no way to to paint it as anything other than a success when you are not looking to sell uh, pay-per-views and you draw 18,000 people and it's your first you know first event you get to make history be the first officially sanctioned MMA event in the state of California uh, you know just just off and off to the races after this I mean there's just no other way to look at this other than a success yeah I think that it's sort of almost uh, divine intervention here for this event because think of all the outcomes that could have come in this main event stuff could have gone bad and here you had frank shamrock going over in dynamic 
fashion and form. So it gives birth to the superstar for, you know, a few shows. And so that's exactly what sort of you want. You know, we could have had this long fight and a bad decision. We could have had a DQ. It could have been boring. But no, this was basically a big squash to have Frank Shamrock become the face of Strikeforce for a while. And he definitely was uh, for, for a while there. All right, well, we want to thank you for joining us for our first episode of Inside the Hexagon. Josh, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us on to, uh, for today's show. I, I think we're, we've set the tone for some, some really good future episodes, and I, I'm looking forward to doing more of these with you. Yeah, this is awesome, Phil. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, fans, thank you for, for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts uh, and look uh, look for our next episode to hit a week from today. Uh, it's my conversation with Strong, uh, Strike Force CEO, promoter Scott Coker, current uh, Bellator MMA president. It's, it's going to be a great conversation. I'm sure you're going to thoroughly enjoy it. But in the meantime, uh, stay safe, stay, stay healthy, and we will see you again soon. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs>